Acts chapter 1, going to be reading verses 9 through 11. Hear the word of God. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. Father God, we look to your word and pray that you would instruct us, that you would Uh, bring healing, reproof, whatever is needed in our lives so that we would be more conformed to the image of your Son. We come dependent upon you. We come as children who delight in you. And Father, it is our glory to listen to your word. Thank you so much that we continue to have the freedom to uh, study it anytime and anywhere that we uh, choose and desire. And I pray this morning that you would anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully preach your word and each one of us to be faithful hearers and doers of it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe seated. <clears throat> Last week we saw that the book of Acts from beginning to end is a book about the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Now there are some people who doubt that and uh, who think that the book of Acts really is just relevant to 40 years during the first century. Now it's true there are some things that are foundational in this book, never to be repeated again. But I agree with uh, John Calvin that this is a kingdom book that for all time is going to be relevant to us. Uh, Calvin said, Acts is the beginning of the reign of Christ. And as it were, the renewal of the world is being depicted here. And in these three verses, we've got kind of a bird's eye view of uh, the whole mediatorial kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 9, it talks about him ascending to his throne in heaven. Then in verse 11, it talks about him coming back in bodily form. And so that's the end of his mediatorial reign. And he reigns forever as God. Uh, The the kingdom of God has no beginning, no end. But the mediatorial kingdom has a beginning at the Christ's ascension. And it has the end at uh, the second coming. And so what I'm going to do, this is going to be the second um, part of our introduction to this fabulous book of Acts. And we're going to put on our reporter's cap and ask the the questions, you know, what, when, where, why, who, and how. And the first question is, when did Jesus go into heaven? Verse 9 says, now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up. Now when was that? If this was the last day that Jesus was with them, the last time that they saw him in his uh, bodily form, verse 3 gives us then the knowledge and all the information we need to know as to when he went up. Verse 3 says, To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. And here is the phrase, Being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And so it's the 40th day after the resurrection We know that Pentecost is the 50th day after the resurrection, so this happens exactly 10 days before Pentecost. So it's 40 days from the resurrection, 10 days from Pentecost. And there is an enormous significance to that. In fact, there is a a significance to all of the events that happened that are recorded there from uh, Passover all the way through to Pentecost. And I think it was three or four Sundays ago, I 
uh, talked about some of those events. I'm not going to repeat all of that, but let me just give you a, a very small, brief condensation of uh, some of the things that happened. Uh, we saw, first of all, that on the very day that the Passover lambs would have been marked with some kind of a mark to indicate these are lambs that are going to be, that are worthy to be uh, slain on that day, Jesus was anointed with that one pound of spikenard oil. Man, the whole place must have been aromatic that day because it's incredibly aromatic uh, oil. And he says that Mary had marked him for his burial. Okay, it was on the very day that the lambs were marked. And then we saw that uh, on the very day that over 250,000 lambs were being herded through the streets to the priests to be inspected by the priests at the temple, Jesus on that Palm Sunday is walking probably in the midst of all of these lambs toward that temple to confront those same priests. It must have been an incredibly emotional time for him. And then we saw that on the very night that Jesus was bound by the elders outside Jerusalem over the brook Kidron, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, there were the elders of Israel in a field that was right adjoining Geth uh, Garden of Gethsemane, according to Edersheim, and they were binding the wheat that the next day was going to be cut down. So there was a ceremony they'd go through. They would tie that wheat uh, up. And so it was um, right side by side that was, uh, that was happening. Then the three hours of darkness was the time that those lambs would have been prepared for sacrifice if they could have been and God didn't allow them to be he brought that thick darkness upon the land so they'd be paralyzed he didn't want any competition with the final sacrifice the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, during the hour that the, the first sacrifice would have been made if it could have been made if they'd been able to make the, the preparations uh, Jesus died he gave up the, the ghost and, of course, the earthquake tore the veil uh, right down the middle and separated it so that any priests who were present in that temple when the lights came on would have been able to see straight into the Holy of Holies. And it's no wonder to me that so many priests in the first uh, chapters of Acts became Christians. They saw all kinds of remarkable things we won't even have time to uh, get into here. That evening, just before dusk, there were two things that were happening side by side at the same near the same spot anyway and at about the same time and that was that uh, the uh, elders would go out to that bundle of grain that they had bound they would cut it down and they would put it into an omer basket and put the lid on it at about the time that Jesus was cut down off of the cross and he was put into the tomb and there was a cover placed over that and just as that omer basket of wheat had the wheat in it for three days and three nights, so too Jesus was in the tomb for three days and three nights. And then, uh, just before uh, dawn, early on the festival of first fruits, which on that year was Sunday, they would take that, that um, uh, bunch of wheat or whatever it was that they were harvesting, they would take it out of the basket, they would thresh it, and then they would offer it up as a first fruits offering to the Lord. And remember we said that Jesus, early in the morning, while it was still dark, had arisen from the tomb. And of course, there were many Old Testament saints with them, what the scripture calls the first fruits of, um, of, the, of the resurrection. But from Resurrection Sunday and on, the Jews to this day continue to count up to Pentecost, and they connect Pentecost with the Passover and the Omer basket by counting Omer day one, Omer day two, Omer day three. 
And it really is cool. There's a lot of other details that are in there as well. So that brings up the question, is there a significance to day 40 that Jesus ascends? We know there's a huge significance to day 50. We're going to be talking a lot about that. But is there a significance to day 40? And I want to look at both the 50th and the 40th day from an Old Testament believer's perspective. Uh, you know, what would they have been reading when they're reading in Acts 1 and Acts uh, 2 and they're going to be saying, whoa, I mean, the lights are going to come on. That's what that's all about. Uh, they would see it so clearly. Now, we don't know the Old Testament ceremonies very well. We should. But if we knew all of these ceremonies, it would just be clicking all kinds of things for us in these chapters. And so let me go over a little bit of what was going on. And this will be kind of a panoramic view of the first couple chapters of Acts, last couple chapters of the Gospels. Pentecost, as it was celebrated in the Bible and in Jewish homes to this day, has three essential themes that are always present. The first uh, theme was that it was remembering Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. Now, did you realize that the first Pentecost that any of the Jews ever celebrated was at Mount Sinai? Uh, the first Passover they uh, celebrated was when they left Egypt, right? And then after first fruits, when you count 50 days forward, it goes right to the time of Mount Sinai. And so all, the t all through the years, whenever they have celebrated Shavuot, which is Pentecost, the Hebrew name for that, uh, they were remembering the giving of the uh, Holy Spirit. Now, on day 50, on day 50, um, well, you know, there's that, that 50 days from the Exodus. Well, Jesus spoke about his coming Exodus when he would take an Exodus of people out of Sheol to heaven. Uh, all of those kinds of parallels you see all the way through uh, the, these chapters. Now, unlike that first Pentecost with Moses, when the only people who had the Spirit coming upon them was Moses and the 70 elders, in the book of Acts, everyone in the upper room has the Spirit coming upon them. And um, uh, it, it really is uh, cool. In fact, in, in, in uh, Numbers, Joshua is kind of offended because there's two people who weren't with the 70. They were one of the uh, two of the 70 elders, but they were in the camp. And uh, the Spirit comes upon them and they prophesy in the camp. And Joshua thinks, this is not right. And he goes running to Moses and he says, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Then Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his Spirit upon them. And so, in a sense, Pentecost was the fulfillment of Moses' wish back then. And Paul says what was going on, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, is that this was a faint foreshadowing of what was going to be happening in the future. He says, for if what was passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Now, what was passing away? It wasn't the law, because the law has always been central to Pentecost. What was passing away was the weakness of the law, which by itself could not accomplish anything in our lives apart from grace. In fact, Hebrews 8, uh, the way it words it is, God's no longer interested in just putting the, the Ten Commandments on outward tablets of the stone. What he does instead is he takes the Spirit, puts the Spirit inside of his people, and he so quickens us by his grace that the Ten Commandments are written on our hearts so that we can love it and live by it. And so it's a far greater, far surpassing glory that the Lord brings in the new covenant. Without the Spirit, all the law is, is condemnation. 
It's not anything that's fun to be around. It's something that Hebrews says they were terrified by. All it was was condemnation, condemnation. But God takes exactly the same law and by His marvelous grace, He makes us love it and feel secure under it. Why? Because we're under the covering of Christ that uh, the pastor uh, Glenn talked about. And so, um, the first feature of every Pentecost celebration from past to present was a remembrance of the giving of the law at Sinai. Only in this case, it's not just a few who were empowered. It's uh, all who were in the upper room. Second fe uh, feature of Pentecost was a marriage ceremony between God and his people. In fact, to this day, uh, you can see it in the history, but to this day there are some Jews, I believe it's the Sephardic Jews, who read a marriage ceremony between God's people and uh, the Lord. And I think the concept of marriage just makes Acts chapter 2 just come alive. The third feature is the reading of the book of Ruth. Now, this is something so ironic to me because Pentecost speaks of the ingathering of the Gentiles into the covenant, and that's what Ruth is all about. She was a Gentile who was brought into the covenant. So every single Shavuot, every single Pentecost, you know, when the Jews are, are reading their ceremonies, even though many of them are prejudiced against Gentiles, they're reading about the Gentiles coming in and being equal heirs. And so it's really a cool... A feature uh, of um, th this festival. Now, I think just my mentioning those three things has probably, at least in some of your minds, made you think, wow, all kinds of things in Acts 1 and 2 are falling into place in my mind. And I think the Jews who read that would have had a much easier time immediately saying, wow, this is incredible, this is incredible. God's promises being fulfilled uh, right before our eyes. Because what was happening is that Pentecost was foreshadowing the coming of Christ who was the greater Moses, who with unveiled face was revealing the Father, was giving the Spirit, was empowering His people to be able to live out the covenant which that first generation of Jews could not do. Remember, they all died in the wilderness in unbelief. They couldn't do it. But God says, I'm going to enable God's people by the power of my Spirit to do it. So that's the broad context of what we're going to look at in Acts 1, Acts 2, and actually the last couple chapters of the Gospels. Now, what about the 40th day? 50th day, we can understand the 40th day. If you count back 10 days from Mount Sinai, when the, the elders uh, have the Holy Spirit coming upon them and they prophesy, you count back 10 days and you get to the establishment of the synagogue system of uh, government. Uh, where, you know, Moses was standing in line all day long and Jethro, his father-in-law, comes along and says, what in the world are you doing here? He says, a long line of people, you never get through them, and the same people come back day after day. He says, you're going to wear yourself out, you're going to wear everybody else out. And he says, look, I'm a priest of God, and if God so commands you, but I think this is from the Lord, if God so commands you, which God did, what you need to do is take of the resources that are upon you, delegate it to those who are under you, and he says... Cause people who are rulers over tens, the ten families was the smallest unit that could make up a synagogue. So rulers over tens, over fifties, over uh, hundreds, and over thousands, right? And he 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 had them delegate Moses delegate that to the to the people. And so that was the day in which the synagogue system was established. Moses empowered others to do what he by himself had been doing all along. Well, in the same way, on the 40th day of this chapter, Christ delegates to his disciples all of the powers that had been entrusted to him, and he decentralizes the ministry. 
Now, just as Moses continued to lead, but he led through the people, now Christ continues to do and to teach. Verse 1, right? But he does it what? Through his people, empowered by his Spirit, and Christ's presence being with us. So it's the day of delegation. Fiftieth day is the day when the church sees God's glory, receives his power. But the fortieth day is basically when Moses said, okay, people, it's yours. Run with it. And that's exactly what Christ does. He gave the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, and he says, it's yours. Run with it. All power has been given to me, and based on that power, I want you to go out. I want you to be making disciples of all of the nations. Now, I've spent a lot more time on this first point, but I think thematically it is important to understand the background. Ascension day is not the day that Jesus stops working. Uh, Acts 1 verse 1 says, no, he continues to do and to teach. That's the implication there. And so uh, what it is, is he is making his ministry far more effective through the decentralization multiplication process. Now that segues into the second question. In fact, it gives part of the answer to the second question. And that is, why did Jesus leave? I mean, if we had had it set up, we probably would have had Jesus sitting on his throne instead of thrown up there, thrown down here and ruling amongst the people. Why does he leave? Is it really to our advantage that Jesus left us? He said it was, right? In John 16, verse 7, he says that it is to our advantage. But the way many people interpret the book of Acts, you would never guess that we have any advantage over the Old Testament saints by Jesus leaving. Let me read that. John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, bound up in that, the passages we've read are two reasons why it's to our advantage. First of all, Jesus empowers us there's the decentralization aspect that we looked at, and we talked about that some last week. But the second, and I think this is really the more important, is that the helper could not come unless Jesus goes. Now, let's just think about that a little bit. Did the disciples have the Holy Spirit before Pentecost? And I think we'd have to say that at least in some sense they had to have had the Holy Spirit um, after Jesus rises from the dead before Pentecost, he breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. But prior to that, Jesus was casting out demons. He said, By the Spirit of God. He was doing miracles by the Spirit of God. He enabled his disciples to do miracles by the Spirit of God. And we see many other examples. In fact, Old Testament saints could not be regenerated and they could not be sanctified if the Spirit of God was not present in their lives. Um, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And yet the Gospels make it just as clear that there is some sense in which New Testament saints have the Spirit that the Old Testament saints did not have the Spirit. And so, you know, what is going on? What is to our advantage if um, they had the Spirit in some sense in the Old Testament? <clears throat> I think, unfortunately, many believers live as if we have no more advantage by way of the Spirit than any Old Testament believer did, and yet Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to empower us. Let me read that verse again, John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, 
I will send him to you. Now look at Acts 1, verse 8. It says, The Holy Spirit would come upon them and would give them power. Okay, the Holy Spirit would give them power to be witnesses. So there was more than just baptism in the Holy Spirit that occurs in Pentecost. Uh, that was something that was new, baptism into the kingdom. Uh, in fact, by the way, that's something we're going to be seeing. Every believer receives the baptism of the Spirit uh, when they are converted. That's the ordinary means. It's not what converts, converts us, but we do receive that. It's baptism into the kingdom. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 13. But we're going to be seeing that in addition to baptism... In Acts chapter 2, there was filling, there was anointing, gifting, empowering, convicting, emboldening, converting, sanctifying. In other words, everything of the Spirit was poured out in all His fullness. In Acts chapter 2, there was a historical giving of the Spirit, just like there had to be a historical giving of Christ to be crucified. And yet, because in God's decree, it's as good as done from the foundation of the world, right? Because God's decrees always happen. It says Christ was the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. It says Old Testament saints could drink of the Spirit. They drank of that rock that followed them, and that rock, uh, that rock was, was Christ. And so there are a lot of things that are given in, in Acts chapter 2. And here's the point I want to make. If we think that the only thing that we have that continues after, say, the first century is the Spirit's work of regeneration and sanctification... We are living no different than Old Testament saints. There is something that goes beyond that. There's really no advantage to Jesus leaving. And so that's one extreme that we need to avoid. The other extreme can be found in the charismatic movement. A charismatic movement, I don't think, adequately explains this either. And I want you to look at another verse. We're going to give you a couple. Luke chapter 7 and verse 28. Now, the context is... Jesus telling the crowds about the truthfulness and the greatness of John the Baptist. Uh, Luke 7, verse 26 says Jesus was a prophet and he was more than a prophet. <clears throat> and then look at verse 28. It says, For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That's a, pretty incredible, <clears throat> that's a pretty incredible passage. Now, charismatics say that what makes the difference between Old Testament saints and New Testament saints is that we all have access to spiritual gifts, whereas only a few people in the Old Testament had spiritual gifts. Now, that is a true contrast. I don't want to discount that. There's a far fuller distribution of the gifts in the New Testament. There's a far fuller um, uh, access to the Spirit and His working in the New Testament, but it really doesn't explain uh, this verse here. This verse clearly says that the lowliest saint in the kingdom is greater than the greatest of prophets. And so when you get into the book of Acts and you see people prophesying and doing miracles and things like that, that's not what makes them greater. Old Testament saints prophesied. Old Testament saints did miracles as well. It's not the giving of gifts, spiritual gifts, that makes us greater than even the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. It's something that goes uh, beyond that. <clears throat> I don't know of any modern claim to spiritual gifts that is greater than some of the Old Testament prophets. There's just no way, like Elijah or Elijah. It's just incredible. 
And Pentecostals might respond and say, yeah, but they didn't uh, speak in tongues in the Old Testament. That's something new. And actually, the greatest outpouring of the ability to speak instantly in another language was at the Tower of Babel, wasn't it? <laughs> I mean, everybody, everybody got it, didn't they? Maybe there was just a small group that didn't get it. They continued to speak in whatever language they were at that time. But everybody got it. And besides that, our verse says that every single Christian, even the least of them, is greater than the Old Testament saints and prophets. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, not everybody has the gift of tongues. Not everybody has the gift of prophecy or has this or that. And so that cannot explain what the difference is. Now, this may be very disappointing to you. It may be a huge letdown to you. But the verses I've just read, each one gives a little bit of a hint as to what makes the New Covenant time so spectacular. And it is that the Spirit is our helper in fulfilling the Great Commission. Or as Acts 1.8 words it, He gives us the power to fulfill the Great Commission. Now, are there gifts? Yes, there are. But those gifts are to enable us to fulfill the Great Commission. Are there other things that were given? Yes. But those things were essentially to enable us, to help us, to fulfill the Great Commission. Verse 8 says that Pentecost marks the transition day of empowerment. And if every believer received that empowerment from on high, that means every believer is responsible to fulfill the Great Commission. Okay? <coughs> but think about how exciting this transition would have been to that beleaguered uh, group of disciples. Because in the Old Testament, it, it really didn't matter how many spiritual gifts that a prophet had didn't mean how, a matter how eloquently, how persistently, how enthusiastically, you know, that he preached the gospel. It tended to be that people had their ears stopped and had their eyes blinded and they couldn't believe. In fact, uh, that, that's one of the most depressing things a pastor can read, you know, is the call that God gave to Isaiah. He says, I want you to go out and preach. And he says, how long? And he says, just keep preaching, keep preaching. And they're not going to believe you <laughs> and they're not going to listen to you. And uh, there were a few notable exceptions. I think Nineveh was a notable exception where every man, woman, and child repented. And according to Christ, they truly repented. They were regenerate. Boy, that'd be incredible. But that was really the exception. Think about Moses. Man, it must have been discouraging to have an entire older generation of people rejected by God and his anger and saying... I'm not going to have you. Hebrews says they all died in the wilderness in unbelief. Despite seeing unbelievable miracles, you know, from Moses' hand. Joshua and Caleb uh, were the exceptions. What makes each one of you greater than John the Baptist is you have been transitioned into the time of the kingdom, into the power of the kingdom, into the resources, the invincible advancement of the kingdom. This is what the Old Testament saints longed to have. Oh, to have a time they long for when, when the word goes forward, God invincibly causes that word to cause his kingdom to grow, 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 and do nothing but grow. That's what they were looking forward to. Now, he doesn't say here that the Holy Spirit's going to do all the work for you. In that passage I read, it says, you've got to do the work, but he is coming to be the helper. And so if you're not involved in... In, in laying hold of and living out the kingdom principles that he's talking about in Acts and he's going to unfold through the rest of this book, then don't be expecting the Spirit to be doing any remarkable power in your lives. 
it's in the process of by faith laying hold of those things. He says, yes, I'm here to help you. I'm the helper for the Great Commission. And everything we do can be so blessed by the Holy Spirit that it all contributes to the advancement of the kingdom. It was to our advantage that Jesus leave because of where he left to. He left to his throne. We'll look at that in a, in a couple of questions. The third question I want to ask is, what was that cloud? And what was the purpose of this cloud which received him out of their sight? Verse 9 <clears throat> goes on to say, While they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, it doesn't say he went up, you know, as if he's the active agent. He is passive, and there's something else that's taking him up. The uh, first phrase, uh, he was taken up, doesn't tell us who he was taken up by. But then the second phrase gives something in addition. It says, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, the literal rendering for um, that is a cloud lifted him up out of their sight. This was no ordinary cloud. This was the same cloud that covered Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, I believe. This was the same cloud that led Israel in the wilderness. Same cloud that filled the Holy of Holies in the temple. In fact, sometimes so powerfully, the priests had to flee. They had to leave because I think this was the Shekinah glory of the Lord. And any time it mentions the cloud in the Old Testament, uh, there's a book that I have that goes through an examination of all of that. It had these innumerable company of angels that were in that as well. But I believe it was the glory cloud. Now, whether that's true or not, I think it was true. This clearly ties Christ's ascension in with an Old Testament passage that I want you to turn with me to. And that is Daniel chapter 7. <clears throat> now, this is a fantastic prophecy of four kingdoms that need to transpire leading up to the time of uh, the Messiah. <clears throat> The lion is Babylon, bear is Medo-Persia, the speedy leopard is Greece, and then the dreadful beast that's mentioned in verses 7 and following is Rome. And Messiah comes during the time of the fourth beast, during the time of Rome. Then verses 9 through 12 give us the first snapshot of the Messiah, and it shows that there are saints who are seated with him in the heavenlies. Now, it may be referring just to the saints who have died and gone before us, but Ephesians 1 does say that we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. He has given to us authority. He has given to us power over the nations, according to Revelation chapter 2. And I, So I think it's the whole, all of them, the ones who have gone before us. It's we who are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And it goes on to say that these thousands upon thousands of saints in that courtroom are seeking vengeance on the beasts, those humanistic governments, just as the importunate widow did. Uh, they're entering into judgment on the bestial kingdoms. Verse 12 indicates there are going to be other pagan beasts who continue to live, even though Jesus has received all authority and all power in heaven and on earth. But I want you to look at the second snapshot. It's verses 13 through 14. <clears throat> it says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, there are only two times that Christ comes on the clouds of heaven. One is at his ascension, visibly anyway, and the other is at Christ's second uh, coming. And I think this verse clearly identifies this as the time of the ascension. Take a look at it. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to 
the ancient of days. Notice that little preposition too. It doesn't say he came back from heaven to the earth, um, but rather he comes to the ancient of days from the earth, right? And so it says he came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Now doesn't Acts say that Jesus was lifted up? Why does it use the word they here? There is several beings that are bringing Jesus to the ancient of days. Well, I think it's um, these angels that were in that glory cloud. They bring him near before him. Then, not 2,000 years later, but it says, Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. And this is glorious. This is saying Jesus has inherited the nations. He has already inherited his kingdom. Symbol of the cloud helps to reinforce that Daniel 7 is talking about exactly the same ascension on the clouds as Acts is talking about. Now, some people might say, well, if that was the case, how come we got so much sin out there? So many problems, you know, out there amongst the nations. Well, the reason is that God has never promised to bring in an instantaneous, uh, you know, reign of, of righteousness he says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It's a gradual growth. In fact, if you look at Daniel 7, verse 12, uh, you'll, you'll see a hint of that. It says, as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So that means even though Jesus is reigning, his enemies don't disappear overnight. If you just think of it like um, Joshua going into the conquest of Canaan, God says... Here it is. It's my gift to you. I've given you the land of Canaan. Boy, they had a lot of work ahead of them to possess that gift, didn't they? And it's the same with us. Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and it's our responsibility to go out and to disciple the nations. That's what he is talking about. Now, that practically answers our fourth reporter's question that I wanted to ask of that passage in Acts 1, and that is, where did Jesus go? Now, Daniel 7 indicates he went to his throne to reign over the nations, to convert those nations. Uh, he's seated at the right hand of God, and if that's true, you would expect the book of Acts to be talking about that. And it does. It talks about it in a number of places. I want you to look at Acts 2 and verses 30 uh, through 31. It says, Therefore, this is speaking about David, Therefore, being a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. Ah, he's saying that that prophecy that Jesus would sit on David's throne was going to be fulfilled at the time of the resurrection of Christ. How could that be? You know, there is, Christ isn't sitting on a physical throne of wood, is he? How could he be sitting on David's throne? Well, the, the answer to that is that um, the throne really is symbolic of his rule. Uh, for example, later kings uh, were said to sit on David's throne, even though David's throne had been uh, destroyed hundreds of years earlier. Uh, in fact, I've got a, a scripture I... Uh, wrote down here, if you want to look sometime at First Corinthians, uh, First Chronicles 29-23, you'll see that the throne of Solomon is not only called David's throne, it's called Jehovah's throne. Let me read that for you. 
says, Then Solomon sat on the throne of Jehovah as king instead of David his father and prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. And by the way, that was a brand new throne. That wasn't the physical throne that David had made. It was a brand new throne that Solomon had made. And yet it's David's throne and it's Jehovah's throne. And so to, uh, Jehovah's throne is David's throne. David's throne is Jehovah's throne. He's just saying this is the rule over the covenant people of God. That's First Chronicles 29, 23. So anyway, back into Acts 2, verses 33 through 36. Uh, he goes on to say, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So where did he go? He went to sit on his throne to inherit the nations, to begin the process of converting those nations. Some people are still waiting for Jesus to sit on his throne and to rule, but we can be excited. We can be enthusiastic that the transitions already occurred and his heavenly reign guarantees his earthly victory. Now, the fifth question is this. Why do the angels stop the disciples from staring off into space? And after all, you'd think they'd have a heart. These guys have just lost Christ, right? Uh, he's, he, he's disappeared. And, and uh, you would think that um, they would let the disciples go through the five stages of grieve, grieving, you know. And, and uh, you know, it's, they're going to be damaged permanently if they're not allowed to mope around for a while, going through those five stages. But nope, these angels, utterly insensitive. They've not read that textbook. And so it says, While they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? I, you know, contrary to what many psychologists say, I believe the best healing that you can have when you have had the pain of loss uh, is to immediately get involved in ministering to the needs of others not meditating deeply for months and months where people become bitter and, and upset and angry and all of those different stages. No, immediately begin ministering to the needs of others so that your focus is off of your needs and by God's grace, you find the healing through ministry. So that's just a, that's just a side note. Christ has given them a mandate in verse 8, which is amplified in Matthew 28, and staring up into heaven is not going to get that mandate done, Right? Some people are so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good. We call them pietists, right? Because they're so preoccupied in meditating on things that are not yet within our grasp, you know, there's something future, that uh, in effect they're staring into heaven. But on the other hand, there are people who go to the other extreme. They are so earthly-minded that they're of no spiritual good. You know what the balance is? Balance is told to us in Colossians chapter 3, and that is that we need to be seeking those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of the Father, because Ephesians 1 says, in Him, in fact, you quoted it earlier, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of God. Uh, no, actually, the Ephesians 1 says, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, right? So there's a bank account up there. We're to seek by faith the resources Christ has already purchased so that we can now go forth in His power and we can be of immense earthly good. That's the kind of heavenly mindedness that can enable us to, uh, to really uh, do what God intended us to do. And so basically, these angels are kicking them out of the nest, telling them to get on the road. 
Very quickly, one more question. How long will Jesus be gone? Verse 11 says there's coming a time when he's going to come back physically, visibly, just like he ascended on the clouds of heaven. And I believe the answer is he will not come back until the church has done the job that it's been commanded to do, right? By the power of the Spirit, we're supposed to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Matthew 28 says, we're supposed to teach all things that Christ has commanded to all of the nations, get those nations discipled so that they're obeying all of the things that Christ has commanded. Now, is that an impossible task? Well, yeah, I have to admit it's an impossible task if it was not for the fact that uh, Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. It's an impossible task if it was not for the fact that Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And that amen means so be it. So let it be written. So let it be done, right? Uh, it would be an impossible task if he had not poured out the Holy Spirit upon the church, resourced us with everything we need, and he has indeed done so. And until the Great Commission is fulfilled, Christ will not come back. Acts 2.34 says Jesus must remain at the right hand of the Father until all enemies have been made his footstool. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Well, then the chapter goes on to say when death is destroyed... And it's destroyed just before the second coming when Christ is still in the air. We're going to be caught up to meet him in the air and then we'll be brought to paths of saying as we're transformed in the twinkling of an eye, he says, then we'll be brought to, uh, to pass the, the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. And then we're going to come with Christ down to the earth. So that means if death is swallowed up just prior, the instant prior to his second coming, every other enemy is subdued prior to the second coming. Now, that is phenomenal. That's incredibly encouraging uh, to me. Christ will not be satisfied with anything short of total victory and total obedience over the totality of life. No square inch of this world should be independent of him. Uh, William Carey, the famous uh, missionary, worded it this way. He said, He must reign till Satan has not an inch of territory. Amen? Uh, that should be our goal. It's uh, our job by the power of the Spirit to bring the savor of Christ to the world and to bring every thought captive to obey Christ Jesus. We must not shrink from that task. Nor must we, nor should we be pietists, you know, who, who shrink, you know, from the task by always being, uh, so, being so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. On the other hand, we can go to the other extreme and we can go out and we say, yes, just remember the people who went into the land of Canaan? God says, don't go in. I've not told you to go. And they said, oh, this is just a small little town. We can take on AI. It's so tiny. And they got whooped really big time. And so we cannot go out apart from the Holy Spirit, but we must go out in his strength. And so let's pray. Father God, we thank you that Jesus has ascended, that he is reigning, that he is building his church so that even the gates of hell cannot prevail against him and against the church. And Father, we are encouraged. We are very much encouraged. And I pray that each one of us in this congregation uh, would have our faith stirred up to uh, expect great things from you and to attempt great things for you. May we not just uh, passively wait for the Holy Spirit to do everything, but may we be very active in the Great Commission, uh, trusting that the Spirit will be our helper. And Father, may you be glorified in this congregation, small as we are, weak as we are, 
Father, that there would be incredible things that would be accomplished worldwide to your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.